0: This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. Songwriter, Grammy-nominated rock journalist, and Nashville tour guide Bill Demain is a hard man to keep up with. Between his nearly two-decade run with the internationally renowned pop duo Swan Dive, his critically acclaimed solo albums, and his many dozens of collaborations with the likes of Marshall Crenshaw, Mike Viola, and David Mead, you would need mass quantities of time to assimilate everything he's published. Luckily for you, you're about to embark on your own guided tour, podcast style, to the many sides of Bill Domain. Before we get started, let's hear a few samples of the music that's in store.
1: Open the window, let the
2: day come in Now you've seen the ending, you can finally begin And every heart
3: gets broken now
2: I was too shy to kiss her. And the soundtrack all that summer, selling England on cassette, Morristown and down to Wildwood Crest. Through my school books and guitar, inside, and off we go. Called her names and kicked her tires, but I still loved her so.
0: Domain, welcome to Songwriter Stories.
4: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Over the course of your career, I've noticed that you've written a good number of songs that were recorded by female singers, most notably by your swan dive collaborator Molly Felder. Mm -hmm. Was writing for women singers something you set out to do, or did you just find that you liked it, you were good at it, and it was working for you?
4: Wow, that's (laughs) that's an interesting question. Um, I I think that. I never really set out to write for either male or female singers, Um, but after I met Molly, which was early on in in my Nashville journey, um, I think through working with her, I just became a little bit more sensitive to female singers, and then I started to write with female singers, and it's weird. When I look back at the last 30 years of music that I've made, so much of it is either in a band with a girl singer or I've written with girl singers like Jill Sobiel and Kim Ritchie, you know, uh, in fact, I've got a good friend coming in tomorrow for a couple days to write with me. Her name is Charlie Faye. She has a sixties style girl group down in Austin. So yeah, I think I don't know why I never had a sister growing up. Maybe it's that if you want to psychoanalyze it, um, (laughs) I, I get along with women really well. And I think maybe because I'm a, sensitive guy, I suppose, that uh I just I just work better with him.
0: It's obviously working for you. I mean that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. (laughs) Um uh do you know who the band Squeeze is?
4: Oh of course, yeah.
0: Okay, so Chris Stifford of that band, he's the lyricist. He became known for writing several songs which intentionally spoke from a woman's perspective, although the songs were sung by his writing partner Glenn Tilbrook. Uh do you notice that there are elements of a woman's narrative voice, your own voice or a narrative neutral voice that filter through during a performance, sometimes even within the same line or phrase. It seems to me that that dynamic of a male songwriter with a songstress adds another layer of richness to your songs. Can you think of any swan dive songs that speak to that?
1: Oh
3: gosh, let's
4: see. Um, Well, you know, I, I would say that I always aim really to sort of make the point of view applicable to both male and female emotions. So Sure. I, I mean, I, I think because I I know, have known Molly for so long, and I sort of know her background, and we're friends, so I know emotional stuff that she goes through. Probably, I, I do try to put some of that in a song, but not in a way that would be so specific that it would just be for her, you know? Right. I, I think, you know, when I think about you know what you just said to set up this question. The first thing that comes to mind is, is probably one of my favorite songwriters, Burt Bacharach, and Hal David, mm-hmm. and their relationship with Dionne Warwick, which I think was always maybe that was the first pop music I really loved because my mom played it around the house all the time. Um, I think somehow that sort of filtered into what I do. Um, you know, and and I, I think again, like Hal David was somebody who was just really sensitive to matters of the heart mm-hmm. whether it was male or female and you look at some of the songs that he wrote specifically for Dion warwick um were later covered by men so they could go either way so I, I think no i don't i i don't ever feel myself being conscious of like making this a specifically uh, female point of view unless the word he is in it, you know, or, or it's going to be that kind of third person song where it references a guy.
0: What's interesting to me is that at some point, I don't, know, um, I don't know that much about you and Molly, but I know that based on an interview, I read that she's in Seattle now and you're not. So let's say you're going to be doing some show in the future and you're doing a swan dive song that you didn't originally sing on the record. Um, it probably will come across differently. It will probably not only to yourself, but also to the people listening, just that there's a male perspective inserted on it, even if it really was neutral to begin with. It's interesting.
4: Yeah, that that's, that's a good point. And I have done that before. I, I mean, I, part of the thing for me is it's hard to sing those songs because I've heard them so long. Mm. And Molly is, it's, it's such a professional singer and I'm more of a songwriter who sings. Um, so sometimes I, I feel, uh, a little intimidated, to be honest, even though I wrote the song to try to sing it after she has sung it, you know. But I have done it, and, and yeah, you're right. It does, it brings out, uh, you know, sort of different feelings in it, um, diff- different timbres in the, uh, in the sound of the song, and uh, it's interesting.
0: So let's talk about Swan Dive, which um, Molly Felder was the, was the girl singer, and you sang too. I did. And that was between... 1997 and 2014, I counted 11 albums without compilations. Is that about right?
4: That's right. 11 records. Yep. That's a lot. That's a long run.
0: Wow. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so so the reason I'm covering Swan Dive first is because it's the biggest cross-section of your material.
4: Definitely.
1: Yeah.
0: So there may have been some other arrangers and producers involved with those albums, but is it accurate to say that you pretty much always had executive control over the sound of Swan Dive?
4: Um, I would say... Really, from the the first album to the last, uh, it was always a collaboration of our producer, Brad Jones, with me and Molly.
0: Great. So was Brad there all along?
4: Brad produced uh, 10 of the 11, yeah.
0: And Brad is also a connection that you share with David Mead, which we'll get to later.
1: Yes. Mm
0: -hmm. Is Swan Dive a democracy in terms of what songs you record? And the reason I ask that is this. Do you ever write something and then Molly does it with you and says, you know, I just don't. Uh, this isn't for me or, or the two of you agree it isn't working right. Or do you always know when you get to that stage that it's ready?
4: There have certainly been songs that, that we've put aside. Um, maybe not so much because she didn't want to sing it, but because others uh, sort of rose to the top, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think for every album we made, really, we probably had twice as many songs as we
0: recorded. Which is why you ended up with the two albums in the first year. Yeah.
4: Right? yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, part of me always sort of wished for that uh that sixties era timetable where people did put out two or three albums a year, because I always felt like, you know, I was writing a lot Um and it would have been nice to have been able to, to put all that stuff out in retrospect at the time. That's how I felt in retrospect. I think it's probably okay because I feel like we did probably put out the stuff that was, that was the best. And a lot of what I look now at a lot of the things that we might have demoed but not actually released. It's like okay, I, I'm okay with that not being out there, you know.
0: Let's talk about the creation of a few swan dive songs that I picked out sure. from different records. And they may seem random to you. because I'm not just picking hits. I'm picking songs <laughs> that, that just appealed to me for the show, you
1: know. Okay, sure.
0: And feel free to share any details about the process or how the song came about or where it came from, arranging and recording. Anything you think is interesting. Okay. Um, we'll start with uh, your beautiful album, 1997. The song is Beautiful Excuse.
2: Oh, that's the
0: Whose idea was the melody, chords, and instrumentation of the intro? Was that all you?
4: No, actually, that it's interesting you picked that song because I wrote that with a guy named Ross Rice, who is the singer of uh, a former singer of a band called Human Radio. They were out of Memphis, mm-hmm. and Human Radio uh, they were signed to to CBS, I think, for for two albums that they did. Molly and I were big fans, so we sort of met him as fans, and then. He ended up moving from Memphis to Nashville and fell in with the kind of whole creative posse around Brad Jones and his studio. So we got to know him.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And that was the first song. Ross and I have written a couple songs together over the years, but that was the first song we wrote. And I remember I had that title, Beautiful Excuse, and that title phrase line. And we we kind of just, it was the two of us in a room together. and We worked on it for, you know, four or five hours. But he, I remember he had that do, 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 that intro thing that with those sort of odd dissonant chords that sounded a little bit like human radio. So as soon as he played it, I was like, oh man, I'm in. That sounds like, and actually, it sounds a little bit more like human radio than it does Swan Dive. When I think about that song now, I don't really think, I don't really think that's, that's like a, a typical, swan dive song it sort of stood out in a way
0: no but it fits
4: it fits oh, okay that's good
0: <laughs> when you hear it in context well when you hear it out of context if you if you were to hear a bunch of let's just say bossa nova songs in a row that sounded bossa nova e and then you heard that one, you would go oh this one really sticks out but when you hear the breadth of your career it doesn't stick out at all because you've done so many different kinds of pop and and you know around the edges of pop and things. Um, I was going to say the verse is really nice. I really like the verse. You wrote that, I'm sure. Or did he write that?
4: Once he had the intro, we just started going back and forth. Um, My guess is that he probably would have written more of the music on that song and me, me more of the lyric just because that's the relationship that he and I have. It's interesting. I don't know what songs and what collaborators you will ask me about, but um, I, I write both music and lyrics. And I've written a lot of songs by myself, but I always find it interesting when you get with certain people, you know, I I think there's just a a natural complementary relationship that emerges out of a collaboration and you find yourself saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to be more of the melody guy in this relationship, or I'm going to be more of a lyric guy, or we're going to be totally democratic and it's just going to go back and forth. So yeah, I, I think with Ross, it's been more, I've been more of a lyric guy.
0: Well, the, the chorus gets an extra lift when the vocal harmony comes in for the title, and that's a good, valuable thing for a songwriter to do, to call attention to the title. But what I love is that when the chorus ends, it ends on, I have nothing better to do, and the word do is on tonic, or the name of the key, the, the note that's, you know, do. And the easy thing to do would be to end on a tonic chord, mm-hmm. and it would, it would also be kind of not interesting. But instead, you come back to that really cool intro with the odd notes and chords. And it's so fun when you hear it the second time.
1: You are such a
3: excuse to find to
4: do. Well, thanks. Yeah, again, I, I would give more credit to Ross for that move, because especially back then, I was uh, I hadn't really sort of moved into, into phases, like three or four albums on, where I started really getting into key changes and modulations and things. So I probably learned a lot from Ross, but yeah, that, that was his, his cleverness and, and his uh, you know musical creativity.
0: Well, it was gutsy to let it happen and gutsy to like it. I mean, you you said I like that. I want that on my record, you know. And you didn't have to do that. You could have said that's nothing like me. So you you recognized it. <laughs> um, you ready to move on to Circle, 1998? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I picked out Better to Fly. I And I think this arrangement is so good from start to finish. You never get a chance to get bored. You know, it's based on that little trundling guitar part. Oh, right. Okay. And uh, what's that happening with the bass sound? It sounds like it's fretless, but maybe it's more than that. You know, it's kind of buzzy.
4: Um, that was Brad. Mm. Oh Gosh, if I remember on that record, Brad played a lot of electric bass. It was a hollow body, uh, an old Gibson hollow body. That was a, sort of his pet bass back then but sometimes he would yeah sometimes he would double a lot of times he would double his bass uh either with uh, with a stand-up bass or with like a moog in different parts like you know i mean he's he's a fantastic bass player just any bass you put in his hands he can he can play wonderful super musical stuff but he's also a real creative guy with sounds so he's always kind of sneaking in little You know doubles and
0: so he's doing like the Carol Kay Brian Wilson layering basses thing. You know, yeah, yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, anything else you want to say about that song?
4: (laughs) That song, I wrote that song by myself. (laughs) It was inspired by uh, I got this mad crush uh, on an actress that I met in New York City, um, and you know, uh, Prince Charles told me never to drop names, but. (laughs)
1: I'll say she, she was the
4: daughter. She was the daughter of Olympia Dukakis, that actress, and she looked like her mom. And you know, she, she was like a, a young version of her mom, and she was super pretty. And witty. I met her at at a party at a theater party in New York, and it was just one of those like you know things. I was kind of starstruck, and I got on the plane the next day and flew back to Nashville. And I wrote most of the song on the plane, thinking about her. Um. And it was, it was cool because I wrote the words and the melody. I didn't have a guitar. So I think that enabled me to come up with that weird riff that starts it. Yep. Because if I had had a guitar and had that melody, I probably would have gone to something simpler, maybe just some, you know, strummed chords. So that was, a, um, I really like that song. And I, I, I think uh, that was a valuable lesson, something I always try to remember as a songwriter Sometimes it's good to get away from the instrument, you know?
0: 100% agree with you. I do it most of the time when I write. I write everything in my head. I make notes to myself so I know what I, what I meant by something. I record. I'll sing and I'll say, that's tonic or that starts on this beat. But I don't like to pick up the instrument because you go for your familiar fingerings. You go for the same things that you normally reach for. But in your head, there's this open palette that you've got more access to. And then you have to find that. And that's more interesting to me. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's it, to, to be fair. I mean, it, it works when you write songs for a long time. I mean, it's good to have a lot of tools in your toolbox and a lot of different ways to get things rolling. So sometimes it's okay to just you find a couple of chords on the piano and it's like, wow, that really creates an atmosphere, you know. And then melodies and words start to come through that that doorway.
0: Fantastic. By the way, was there a play on words when you did uh, Mayfair in June? Didn't you have an album? Mayfair in an album, June?
4: <laughs> <Never. laughs> You're the first person who's ever said that. And, and I don't think I've ever really thought about it until you just said it. Wow, that's, that's cool. No, it wasn't intentional.
0: Oh, so there's no pattern. Okay.
4: Yeah, so there's no pattern. Just, <laughs> yeah.
0: I get credit for thinking of it, but, no, but nobody cares. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> in 2004,
0: you had the album William and Marlis. Am I saying that right?
4: Yes, Marlis. That, that's Molly's given name, Marlis.
3: Oh,
0: gotcha. All right, so Sleeper was very different from a lot of the other music you did.
3: We were asleep
0: there's a couple of lines, you wanted something more, I wanted something marvelous there. And then climb a mountain in the dead of winter. So there's some good lines in there too.
4: That, that song, I remember exactly how it got written. I wrote just the lyric for it mm-hmm. and didn't, didn't have any music. And by that point, I had been writing songs for a couple of years with one of my favorite collaborators, a guy named Gary Clark. Gary used to sing, sing with a group called Danny Wilson. Um, went on to be a producer and, you know, work with Natalie and and Anyway, I, I emailed him that lyric and as, as it, I mean, he lives now, he lives in Scotland, but at the time he lived in London um, and we did, even though we wrote together in person a few times when I was in London, we did a lot of uh, email collaboration like that. And I just sent him the lyric and he sent me back that tune without changing a word I was like, damn, that's (laughs) that's really (laughs) right on. I mean, totally captured the mood of of what the song is about. Um, And on his demo, he used a drum machine. So I think that's why we did too, because we just kind of liked the feel of the demo.
0: Yeah, and I think it made Molly sing a certain way. The whole thing came across very sleepy, very, you know, it was nice.
4: Yeah, it's a sad song too. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I agree. I th- I think probably that setting of a drum machine. Um, I can't remember what the instrumentation was on that song, but uh, it it probably did did bring out a different color in her voice. You're right.
0: Mm-hmm. Popcorn and a Mama Who Loved Me too, <laughs> 2005. Was that your title?
4: No, that 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 is very obscure reference to a, a saying that a, a friend of mine back in high school had. I can't even remember like why, but I think we were honestly, Dave. I think we were stuck on a title for that record. Yeah,
0: this is as good as any.
4: <laughs> well, no, I think the only reason we chose that is because at that point we were we were like deep in our relationship with with Japanese labels. I think we made that one for JVC, and I don't know if you've been to Japan before, but it's often the way that they market things, you know, everything from from candy to to toothpaste, they'll market it with a Japanese name and then an English name that's some totally bizarre uh, amalgam of, of English words. So, popcorn and a mama love me too. When we told that to them, they were like, oh, cool. <laughs> they didn't even ask what it meant because it sounded that's we knew it sounded so weird and so Japanese, you know?
0: Perfect. <laughs> Well, the song I picked is not uh, I'm going to be more down the middle with you this time uh, You Are My Superstar which I think is a great song
3: You are
0: As it goes along, the sax and cowbell music break comes in, and then it kind of goes deep into R&B territory at the end, and even uh, Molly starts singing differently. It's very nice. Anything to tell us about it?
4: Yeah, so I wrote that song with, uh, with one of, another one of my favorites, Jill Sobiel, and I had that melody on the verse, that sort of uh, four over five to five thing with that Hollow notes kind of chord yeah. to it. yeah. And I started singing that with, I think, probably just some dummy lyrics. And I love writing songs with Jill because she has so much energy. It's almost like once once you put the ball in the air, it's just a continuous volley that goes back and (laughs) forth. So it tends to put, the reason I like it so much is it tends to push the song forward in a really energetic way. Mm -hmm. And I think almost everything I've written with Jill has gotten completed within two or three hours
0: that's great
4: which is kind of remarkable
0: um always in person then right
4: yeah yeah i don't think i've ever written with jill in any other way than in person mm-hmm. i don't think she would she would really like to do it any other way um
0: it's interactive
4: interactive and as far as like the you know the title and stuff i can't remember who came up with that but usually when i write with her it's it's really democratic because she she's a great lyricist and a great mel uh, melodicist so always happy to write with her. And, and also, Jill is one of the funniest people I, I've ever met. So <laughs> as we're writing a song, there's also a, a sort of side song, a side version, like a dirty version of it that gets written, <laughs> you know, with lines that was like, no, we can't say that. you know. <laughs> That's great.
0: Mayfair, 2009, Once I Lived in London. I, I loved this as soon as you started singing. This is uh, one that you sing.
2: Once I lived in London Right near the Vauxhall Bridge In a room on a corner The size of a fridge A bed, a desk, a window And the fog across the Thames Drinking English, teach morning In the sound of Big Ben I went busking every day, trying to find somewhere rich to play, cold and nervous. Closed my eyes and kept believing. Closed my eyes and kept believing. Closed my eyes and kept believing.
0: believing. The verses are outstanding. There are a lot of little things going on there. There's a the melody and the chord changes, but also one chord is played a little later than you expect it to be, it's held back, and then also the way the melody of every other line doesn't end on the most expected note if you know what I mean and then at the end you put a nice round in it's a beautiful song. What do you have to say about that
4: I'm so glad you you brought that one up because that one is about to have a have a, a new life so this is another song that I wrote. Uh, with a great songwriter from the UK. His name is David Scott. David mm-hmm. plays in a group called the Pearl Fishers, which uh, if you don't know them, you should check out their records. They make beautiful records, very much in the same, same sort of uh, you know, stylistic genre swan dive, drawing from a lot of 60s influences. But that was a song I wrote as a lyric. Uh, and it's true because I lived in London for a while and I was remembering all these things like walking home by myself and the music that I listen to and playing in the subway. And I didn't know David Scott very well. I had met him once and we hadn't written yet together. And I said, well, I'd love to write together sometime. And he goes, you know, next time you come to England, let's do it. But I didn't really want to wait that long. So I thought sometimes you just have feelings about things. It's like, I don't even know why I just thought David Scott will really respond to this lyric. So I emailed it to him and he wrote me back and he said, he said, you won't believe, it. he said, this is, I, you know, I grew up in Glasgow, but I came to London in the eighties and I relate to this so deeply. So let me see what I can do with it. And some time went by, it was maybe a year hmm. and I thought, well, maybe he forgot about it, you know? And then one day this demo showed up that was mm-hmm. that song. And it was like, oh my God, it's incredible. You know, it's like, it's just this beautiful piece of music. So we did it the best we could. But honestly, Dave, I've, I've always felt a little intimidated even by David's demo. But happily, David has just recorded it for the new Pearl Fishers record comes out in two weeks. And I have to say, I like their version better than ours.
0: All right. I'm going to get into your solo work now. In your letter starts out um, like a song by Eric Carmen and the Raspberries called Waiting. Everything was
2: lowercase and Q
0: Go somewhere completely different and seamlessly returns to the first theme. And that's what really hooked me, is how you went to a new place. I'd like, wait, did it start a new song? But it didn't. And it wasn't even a different tempo, but it felt different. And then it comes back. Mountain air, there was something
2: going on up there. And what a pair of misfits we Now I guess I'll read between the lines. In your letter. In your letter. And again, you've picked a song
4: that, that I wrote a complete Finnish lyric for. Had no music. I feel really fortunate that I have people in my life that that can respond in the same way that, you know, if I could if I could be so bold to say that, you know, Elton responds to Bernie Tappan. It's like Mm -hmm. sometimes you write a lyric and and that was another lyric. It was super personal. I really loved it. And and I was protective of it. I didn't want to just show it to anybody. You know, I thought I I have to save this for the right moment. And I had started writing songs with a guy named Larry Goldings Hmm. out in Los Angeles. Larry is, um, Larry is a a badass jazz piano player. I mean, he plays with like John Schofield and, but he's also James Taylor's uh, musical director. So he's, he's a super musical guy and i again just had a feeling i went to his house i brought him that lyric and he basically just came up with the melody in front of me and i think we tinkered with a few little things here and there but that's larry's music and larry is a you know again i'm always happy to defer to people like that who are <laughs> I, I feel like sort of like yodas of melody you know Mm-hmm. Um, cause I always learn from working with him, but, um, and again, we established a relationship. Larry and I've probably written 10 songs together all from, uh, one side to the other. So eight of those 10 were my lyrics and the other two, he just sent me melodies and then I wrote lyrics to him.
0: Okay. Common love song.
4: Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the other way. I wrote that with Larry Goldings. Um. Larry sent me that melody, which immediately sort of put me in mind of uh, Harry Nilsson in the early 70s, which is, you know, that's like some of my favorite pop music.
1: Fell asleep
2: at my desk, waiting for inspiration to bring me a clever life. They lost its currency in 1925.
4: I can't remember what inspired the the lyric on that one. It was probably some breakup that I'd gone through, but mm. uh, I just remember. Getting it pretty quickly, you know sometimes uh, I've written to people's melodies a lot over the last thirty years, and sometimes it it you have to sit with it for a while before it tells you what it wants to be about um, mm-hmm. but that song pretty quickly, I think I got like two or three of the key lines, and then I was you know it's it's I feel like if you either get a title or a really great line sometimes that can that can help you crack the code and you get inside and then it, you can write it a lot more, more quickly and more effectively. Yeah.
0: The line before suggests itself or the line after like the couplet or the rhyme might yeah, suggest yeah. itself. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to transatlantic romantic. That's your first full solo album. And it's just a couple of years ago, 2017.
4: Yeah. I waited a long time to do that. <laughs> you
0: uh, didn't play any guitar.
4: No, that was, that was part of the reason that I made that record. Uh, as a challenge to myself i had i had i 'd been playing a little piano over the years, but never really sat down and tried to really play it and i thought okay i 'm only going to write and play on the piano for this record, which when I started it was like yeah that 's
0: not going to work <laughs> but, <laughs> but when you made a decision, did you have the songs already no no' okay. that
4: was, see that was the that was the thing it 's like when I started that record, I don't think my piano playing was good enough yet to do a whole record. And that was part of the, the thing that made it interesting for me and a little scary. Is like, okay, I have to get not only write good songs, but I have to get better on piano so I can actually play the songs. You know, that took a lot of work.
0: Well, I used to write songs that were harder than I could play so I could play better. Yeah. I mean, I would have to learn the song that I wrote. <laughs> you know, that's kind of good, right? Oh, it's
4: great. I mean, it was such an enjoyable experience, you know.
0: I agree with Alan Haber. He reviewed your album and said that there were nods to Harry Nilsson and and Paul Simon and Randy Newman. But I also hear some Michael Penn in there. Um, It might just be because the title of Brewster, Illinois, April 3rd, 1952.
2: The Kiwanis Club is having a special potluck dinner to raise money for. A new tile floor and Don Fenton Bowl two twelve. Won its team a trophy in the local league A clean sweep There's a PTA card party in a John Wayne movie A dance for the March of Dimes In Brewster, Illinois on April 3rd, 1952
4: I love Michael Penn. Yeah, I certainly wasn't aware of that influence.
0: That's one of two you did with Gabe Dixon.
4: Yeah, I co-wrote that with Gabe, and we kind of wrote that from the ground up. Um, Gabe's a great piano player, so that was also helpful for me because he taught me a couple of moves that I used on that, and uh, what was the other one we wrote together? Um, Golden Age? Golden Age, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know be Interesting to ask Gabe what he thought of, of Michael Penn, but um,
0: well, that's the fun thing about this. I might, I might interview him someday. You never know. Yeah, <laughs> you wrote the lyric though on this one. We wrote uh, at Booster, Illinois.
4: Yeah, I, I think Gabe wrote some of it, and I wrote some of the. I remember writing that bridge melody, and I think I had the idea because I had been looking at um, for some reason, weird reason, I kept. A copy of my small town newspaper. Yes. I grew up in a little town in New Jersey called Mendham and we had a uh, newspaper called the Observer Tribune and I had, for some reason I had an Observer Tribune from like the 1980s and I looked at it and it was all those kinds of things like you know, this guy got a 300 in his bowling score or like a tree fell on the mayor's house and, and in fact I think a few of the lines were just like taken directly out of the paper but it's it's sweet to me like that People care so much in a small town to, to report on stuff like that, which would only be important to people who live there, you know.
0: you vindicated me because I wrote down the following sentence. The lyric begins like you're reading a poster, like being for the benefit of Mr. Kite from the Beatles.
4: Yeah, exactly. That, I, I think that was probably, you know, no, being a huge Beatles fan and knowing this, the stories behind all their songs, I, I, I'm sure that couldn't have of not influenced me knowing that lennon did that you know i think we wrote that song over two sessions i don't think we wrote it all in one go because my sense is that we we did get we sort of left off at the bridge and then both of us sort of went away and then when we got back like what if the bridge went here or what if it went here and i think i had those chords that pointed the way to where it eventually went and then we finish the song. Mike
2: and Maggie Foy had a baby boy named Roy. Greg and Mary Womack got divorced. And Virgil Miller rode his horse halfway to Chicago.
4: it's a it's such a cool bridge i think it was sometimes you want to do that like if it's a longer song like that and a bit more complicated you know you don't have to finish it all in one go it's it's good to sit with it and make sure you, everything is is going by good and then for me it's fun sometimes like when you get back together with somebody it's like okay we got to write a bridge well that's a fun that's always the, like the most fun to write you know
0: mm-hmm. the bridge chords remind me of uh, ben folds and um, I love a good bridge. I, I, the other day, somebody asked me to explain what a bridge is. And I kind of felt bad for them because it was like talking to someone who had never tasted ice cream.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Or more accurately, it was like they tasted ice cream, but they had no frame of reference for appreciating ice cream, which is crazy. You know, like I've tasted a bunch of ice cream, but I don't know if it's good.
4: Well, uh, to be fair, I think, you know, I, I don't listen to that much modern pop and R&B music, but I, but I am aware of it and I, and I do hear it, but I am struck by the fact that the, the bridge seems to have gone out of fashion in much yep. the same way that the, that the intro has,
1: mm-hmm. you know, a
4: separate piece of a song that is unmistakable, but doesn't, doesn't actually occur more than once. You know,
0: you can not have bridges and verses if you're doing a hook every seven seconds, like a computer, Yeah, which is what they're doing on purpose. Yeah. But Hey, you know, it is what it is. So in the Golden Age, were you the lyricist?
4: Yes, that that was almost a a complete lyric, and that was mostly Gabe's music. Um, And that was directly influenced by watching Midnight in Paris, Woody Allen movie.
2: Man, I should have played the village in the 50s At the vanguard or the gate I'd be blowing for the beatnik crowd Turtleneck and shades, tarawack and Coltrane Smoking in the park where we read our poetry Out loud It's all so swinging So cool and free A time and place I've got to see Stop the clock Turn the page Let me live in the golden age
0: I like the Kerouac and Coltrane um, alliteration, and I like Two Wheels Good, which is a Also a Prefab Sprout album title. Oh, man. It was nice to get those in there.
4: Well, I have to say, Prefab Sprout, that particular record is one of probably my top three all-time favorite records.
0: Awesome. Is it okay if we uh, switch gears and talk about collaborations in general and then some of your particular collaborations?
4: Yeah, yeah, i love it. Go ahead.
0: Um, Have you ever heard any interviews? Do you follow Elvis Costello at all?
4: Yeah, I'm a huge Elvis fan, and and I've actually... uh, I don't know if you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. Too, I, do. And I I interviewed Elvis one time.
0: What is the uh, publication you write for that, that is behind a paywall?
4: Um, well, you might be thinking of Rock's Back Pages.
0: Yes, Rock's Back Pages.
4: That's really just a, a kind of uh, collection okay. of various journalists who put their work up there for, for possible syndication. Um,
0: well, I saw a bunch of titles there that I wanted to read really bad. I'm like, I'm going to have to spring for this.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean... I get of course because my stuff is on there, I get a complimentary subscription, but
0: mm-hmm. it, it
4: is pretty great. If you're if you're a music nerd, you can really dive deep in there because some of the, the journalism goes back to the nineteen fifties to Melody Maker and NME. And it's super helpful uh for research too. Like if you start working on a piece, you know, on David Bowie and you want to read everything that David Bowie said in, from nineteen seventy-four to seventy-six you can find it on that site, you know? So
0: I didn't know that. So what were you going to tell me about Elvis and your interview? Oh,
4: well, I was just going to say, I'm a huge Elvis fan. Always have been. And when I interviewed him, it was for a magazine called Performing Songwriter, which is sadly, sadly defunct now, but that was always a great magazine to work for because, you know, they would send me on an assignment as a journalist, but in my mind, I'm thinking like, this is going to be great because I'm going to learn so much about songwriting stuff I can apply to my own work, which was usually the case, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, El- and Elvis was always, and it's still super articulate.
0: What year was it? Um, it was this record,
4: The Delivery Man, but never year that was two thousand, two probably two thousand seven. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, he anything was was fair game as far as what he would talk about. You know, you could ask him about specific songs from the early days. Every day I write the book or Allison. And it was just great to to spend time with him. And weirdly, I have, I have now played on or, or written for two records. Uh, for, uh, the drummer has been Pete Thomas, mm-hmm. Elvis's longtime guy from the Attractions. Mm-hmm. So I've actually gotten to know Pete really well I mean I would consider him a friend and I have mountains of respect for Elvis but I I can't remember what your original question was but but I'm a huge Elvis fan
0: (laughs) that's beautiful well I was gonna say uh, I read an interview with Elvis where he's talking about what it was like working with different collaborators and I remember one interview where he said Burt Bacharach wouldn't let him change any notes to fit Elvis's lyrics which tied his hands a bit but also turned out to be a worthwhile songwriting discipline. So for some collaborations, there was an obvious division of labor, and for others, the line was blurred. With that in mind, how did your co-writing roles and boundaries differ depending on your collaborators? And, you know, name some specific people in song if you can.
4: Uh, well, you know, using that example of Elvis and Bert as a springboard, I will say that my friend Larry Goldings is very particular about melodies that he writes and w- does not want any notes added or subtracted.
0: <laughs> he's the Aaron Sorkin of melody.
4: <laughs> yeah, he's the Aaron Sorkin of melody. <laughs> um but I I have to say I, I do whenever I do write lyrics to to somebody's melody um I do try to honor what they write and and not automatically assume that I can just just add some extra grace notes because that's part Mm -hmm. of the challenge of being Mm -hmm. a a lyricist and being good at it is, is you really do have to almost Stephen Sondheim, you know, said it's, there's a crossword puzzle aspect to it. Um, And it's true. I mean, you do have to sometimes fit words in where you might not normally know how to fit them in, or it might be frustrating because you think if only I had those extra two syllables, you know, but
0: it's a matter of honoring the other person, though. Yeah, I think so.
4: I think so. It forces you to be, uh, you know, more creative. But that said, I do have other collaborators where sometimes we have added extra notes, you know, and it's been, it's been for the, the better of the song. I mean, to me, whatever is, whatever is for the better of the song.
0: Mm-hmm. Would you be less likely to change it if you're not in person, for instance, because you can't ask them?
4: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the flow of being in a room with somebody, it's a lot easier to broach those kind of subjects and just sort of illustrate, like, what if it was this? What if it was that? And by doing that, sometimes the other person might say, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. What if it's this? So it, I go back to that idea of the volley. The volley is h- much harder to do when you're trying to do it long distance or you're not in the same room.
0: Gotcha. Do you agree that collaborating is almost the same as writing to spec or it's it's a form of writing to spec. It seems to me that if there's chemistry in the song or the project or the concept or the collaboration, then writing to spec can be just as magical or rewarding than when you're not, it can pull out things that you couldn't get. Otherwise, if you're just waiting for inspiration to strike, you know?
4: Yeah. Personally, I, I welcome limitations being introduced into a, into a collaboration because I feel it forces you to be more creative, and it also focuses things. You know, some sometimes if the sky's the limit, and you're just like, "What do we write about? We can write about anything." That can that can be sort of debilitating in a way. Whereas if you go into a, a co-write and you know you're writing for a specific person, maybe the other person is the artist, and they say, "I want to write something um, like a sort of Patsy Klein style ballad." Well, right away you have these sort of parameters in place in which you can be creative. And personally, I I love that.
5: Back in the room you were wrapped in a towel Swim beds together, the TV turned down. I thought to myself, That will make it somehow that was you. you need you and need in Sicily.
0: I just interviewed David Mead, uh, with whom you've written songs and you played in his albums and collaborated with him.
4: Yeah, he's, he's a genius, that guy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, and uh, there was an album, Almost and Always, uh, 2008. So here you are writing for and having success with a group that has a female lead singer and you get together with David Mead to write an album for a Shantoose to be named later. As I read.
4: Yeah, that's true.
0: He snatched the songs back, right? Yeah. He pulled them all back and made his own album and you play guitar on it and you co-wrote all the songs or some of the songs.
4: Uh, most of them, I think nine okay. of the 12. Yeah.
0: So what was that particular collaboration process like? And uh did Did each of you bring titles and verses or choruses or was the writing done together in a room or what was the division of labor? Uh,
4: It was done different ways. Um, I'll say that I knew David socially for for quite a long time before we ever sat down to to try to write together. I was always a fan of his. Uh, We played shows together with our bands. And um, I think when we started the first three or four songs we wrote together were, from lyrics that I had completed. And again, he has, he's maybe the most gifted melodic person I've ever known. Um, Just can just keep pulling melodies out of his hat. It's just a remarkable thing to watch. I mean, he's he's really gifted that way and has almost a channel to that sort of muse. I think as we got going, by the time we wrote that record, because we knew that we were, like you said, we were writing for this project that never came to be. we never found our Bette Midler or whoever um, that I was probably a little more involved in some of the music too. Um, It probably depends on what song you're talking about, but um, like for instance, I think the title song, I remember having that, that guitar part that sort of dictated what the melody would be Mm -hmm. that I showed to him where other things, probably the song from that record that comes to maybe my favorite song from that record that I remember we wrote from the title up was 20 Girls Ago.
5: Uh. Fall in snow. How I played the same charade, drunk on first hello a vagabond dream. Hey, that was me, twenty girls ago.
4: I think I had that title. And it was it was honestly it was it was nicked from from a Buster Keaton movie called Ten Girls Ago. Um, I just thought, well, we'll just take it and, and add ten. And we started writing that, and it really just sort of that was a two or three session song because it it's it's got a lot of a lot of lyrical information in it and it has to develop over time, almost like a little movie. Um, but Yeah, back and forth. I mean, David, David can do both. I mean, he's a great lyric writer, too. As you can tell, if you've heard his new stuff, it's like he writes it by himself. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really need to collaborate. So I always felt, I always felt like that, you know, at first, like, I was really privileged because he doesn't co-write with a lot of people. And Mm. we just, I think we hit it off creatively, but we also enjoyed each other's company a lot. Mm -hmm. And that made it that made it easy for us to sit in the room together and and do stuff. And honestly, we weren't even that close of friends before we started to, to write songs together. So I I love that relationship that he and I have, you know, we're still great friends. We don't really write together much anymore, but I'm hoping that we might, you know, maybe this year we'll get, get a song or two together.
0: It's a sweet album. I like it. You know, what I noticed is that you made an album with Swan Dive the year before and the year after almost and always. Um, Did you, a, feel any hesitation about being able to come up with another album's worth of songs for Swandive after that? Or B, did you just have a great flow at that time? Or C, were you confident that writing another projects would inspire you to, and bring out new things for the next album? Like, didn't it scare you that you might run out of songs?
4: No. Um, you know, I, I think I'll go back to something I, I, I said before, maybe hinted at before that all during Swan Dive was fortunate because all through our, career of making those 11 records we always had a record deal. Almost all of the record deals were in Asia, you know, most of them were in Japan, but we did have two in South Korea and one in Thailand. And that impetus of knowing that there was actually going to be a little budget and the record was going to get released and promoted and we might even get to go tour behind it to me was was a huge boost. I always felt like okay, you know they they've invested their belief and a little bit of money in us then then it's my duty to come up with songs i mean that's that's what they they want from me and i'm happy to do it i mean i i'm i enjoy doing it but the interesting thing to me is for the last two or three well since 2014 more than two or three 5 years i haven't had a record deal for my stuff or swan dive doesn't and i feel i feel a lot less motivated to finish things and and to work on things. I still write a lot, but it's, it was sort of a golden period in, you know, around almost and always because there was a reason to write and, and I felt the push behind me, you know.
0: Truly Madly Deeply was on uh, Marshall Crenshaw's 447 album in 1999 and you covered it too. Let's talk about that one.
4: Sure. I was a huge fan of Marshall Crenshaw's before I ever met him and I did meet him through Brad Jones. And we, we got to be friends, mostly long distance friends who lives in New York. But at some point out of the blue, he sent me a track and it was that track, you know, with his, his vocal just singing na And he said, see what you can do with this. He was really blunt. <laughs> and it was, it was super intimidating because I mean, I really look up to Marshall and again, he's one of these guys like David where he's mostly written on his own. I don't think he, he, needs a co-writer. But he must have I understand he must have gotten stuck or saw something in me that he thought I would respond to that, which I loved it immediately, of course. I worked on it, I think probably harder than I've ever worked on a lyric. Maybe because I just knew that my boss was Marshall Crenshaw, you know? <laughs> um, but I worked on it I remember at least three weeks working on that lyric. I got a good part of it early on, but then I got stuck and I I kept trying to second guess, like, what would Marshall Crenshaw feel good singing about? So that's why, whenever I think about early Marshall, it's like, he always sang songs about sort of being in the city, you know, and like walking around with his girl, and I wanted to get that vibe in the song. So I worked really hard to do that. Mm got it. I sent it to him. And he liked it, although Marshall is not a guy who's super effusive. So, you know, the fact that it was maybe one step above, like, yeah, that works. <laughs> but but he really liked it. And, and he recorded it. And I was thrilled because I just thought, oh, my God, it's like, you know, if I never do anything else musically, the fact that I, I got to write a song with Marshall and he recorded it was a huge deal for me and then we recorded it and he really loved our version which made me feel great
3: oh, I like to the that's where the good times are
4: So yeah, that that song Marshall wrote all of the music, the melody, and I wrote the words. And I think we were gonna call it Truly Madly Deeply, but there was another song, I can't remember, it was an English duo that had a hit called Truly Madly Deeply. Yep. Something
0: Gardener, um, Garden
4: Deep. Garden yeah, Magic Garden or something. Yeah. Secret Gardener. Um so it was Marshall's idea to do the um the T M D. Everybody knows it is Truly Madly Deeply.
0: You wrote the line Truly Madly Deeply in the song, right? I
4: did, yeah. But, and I titled it that too, but he didn't want to keep that title. That's why he recorded it under TMD.
0: Mike Viola did a song with you and you guys recorded it called Star Crossed Lover from Soundtrack to Me and You.
4: Oh, yeah. So there's another example of me being a fan and seeking the person out. Uh, I mean, happily, my friend Kelly Jones knew Mike because they'd made records together. So she introduced me to him one trip to LA and I remember going over to Mike's house and again, he's sort of like Jill Sobiel. He's just a super positive, funny, energetic guy. We wrote two songs, "Star Starcrest Lover being one of them in about two and a half hours. I had titles, you know, and I think on one song, I might've had a little bit of lyric, but Mike, Mike is one of those guys. He's like, yeah, I like it. Let's do it.
0: He sounded just like him,
4: and he just starts playing. And what comes out of his mouth, because he's he's such an experienced experienced guy, is he like his first impulse is usually great, you know.
3: I'm out here walking, trying to let you go, and all this crying's at a dead end road. I might love you till the day I die, but no more waiting till tomorrow. No more giving one more try. You and me were never meant to be. Star crossed
4: the Yeah, there's another song we wrote. I always wish Swan Dive had recorded. Um, I don't know if we'll ever make another record, but if we do, we might. It's called Upside of a Down Thing. And it's super just like up tempo, fun, kind of Motown vibe. Um, But yeah, we wrote those two songs. I've written more songs with him since, but. That first day was, was super fun and, and just a magical thing to write with him.
0: Awesome. You brought up Jill Sobule several times, and um, she did a song called The Party's Over Party Girl with you um, on Nostalgia Kills in 2018. Yeah, yeah. And this is an example of what we touched on earlier. A man can say that to a woman. A man can say to a woman, the party's over, party girl. Or a woman can say that to another woman, the party's over, party girl. Or a woman can be saying that to herself. And all of those contexts would lend different meaning to the song.
3: The party's over. Party girl, your friend.
4: her title and we wrote it together both music and lyrics because i remember she came over she had that title and she was talking about um who is that young hollywood
1: actress
4: (laughs) a lot of them but she had red hair real pretty um and then she was in the tabloids forever Lindsay. Lindsay lohan Lindsay lohan that was it she was the inspiration for that song um and and jill and it's funny because jill and i have another song called joey heatherton called Joey. So we always like to write about these Jill loves, you know, tabloid Hollywood. She lived in LA for a long time. Um, so she loves all those sort of like backstage stories, you know, all about Eve kind of stuff. So yeah, she had the title and I think I started playing that uh that kind of minor key, you know, Tom Waitsy kind of thing vibe and then we were just off and running and pretty sure we finished that song in an hour or two it was really quick and it just there's something about that song too that i think is personal for her because when she was younger she lived in new york and and i remember her telling me about like going to the clubs and like the you know the bouncers would would know her and her cute friends and always sort of let them in for free And there's something really poignant about that and like you keep going back and then you're older and like it's not so easy and like they're not letting you in for free. And yeah, I think it's a really, I love that song. I I think it's really, it's not just about, you know, like a Hollywood burnout. I mean, it's it's about getting older, you know.
0: Yeah, it sounds surface, but it's really deep.
4: Yeah. Thanks for picking that one out. I like that one. Mm
0: -hmm. Sometimes a song's appeal transcends its arrangement and its recording. Uh, songs that tend to have a strong potential for pop crossover, like Glenn Campbell, you know, had songs like Southern Nights by Alan Toussaint, and, you know, he recorded it differently and he did Jimmy Webb songs and they, they always came out more poppy. And some of your Swan Dive songs could be described as bossa nova pop, and some of your solo music could be, you know, classified with a niche genre. But I think all of them have a, a real strong crossover quality for pop. Um, and you do some, you know, large amount of work on arranging for some of these songs, right?
4: I do, yeah.
0: Some audiences might need to be served something specific and easily digestible, whereas others are more adventurous. How does that play into your arranging choices? Like, do you do you think to yourself, I want to make sure this gets a broad audience, or I got to hit them where they live, or oh. you just do it where you want to go?
4: Yeah, it's whatever's best for the song. I mean, you can't. Yeah, you can't really think. I, although I will say, like a, any musician who's ever. Recorded for especially a major label. There was a a brief time when Swan Dive, you know, we we had a kind of golden period in Japan where we had a couple of top five hits, and the label was really behind us and putting money into us. And as much as I felt the energy, like I said before, of the impetus, I also felt uh, a a little bit intimidated. But you know, it's like, okay, what is it? What are they going to like? You know. Right, if, right. And that can be debilitating and, and can make you uh, can lead to some decisions that are not always the best ones. But I would say for the most part of all the records that I've been part of and any time arrangement things come up, um, it's just whatever serves the song, you know.
3: Oh, I made a good living. I traveled the world. I've seen so many things, but at the end of it all, I'm not your girl, not your
0: girl. No. you have a list of people, a short list of people that you want to write with that you haven't written with yet? <laughs>
4: Yeah, you don't have
0: to share them if they, if you want to don't want to. No, spoil maybe it.
4: maybe by maybe by putting it out into the world, it'll it'll like mm-hmm. somehow get to them. Of course, you know, like uh, of course, I would love the chance to write a lyric to a Burt Bacharach melody. Um, I would love to try to write with Elvis Costello, um, but I, I think also, you know, there are other people, maybe uh, locally that you wouldn't ha- you wouldn't even have heard of that I, that I think a lot of, that I I would, I just wrote, uh, I just wrote for the first time with, with a girl singer that I really love named Caitlin Rose, who I've been a fan of for a while. She lives here. And I don't really even know her that well. I just sort of, uh, wheedled my way into this. It was a three-way thing and I hope to write more with her. I think she's, she's really brilliant. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, and I'm always open to writing, I don't do as much blind date stuff anymore, but I'm going out to LA in the summer and I'm going to write with Kelly and probably Mike, but I might ask them if there's anybody else. Oh, you know who it is? This is, this is who I want to write with the most. This might mean nothing to you. Do you know who Anara George is? Mm
1: -mm.
4: Anara George sings with a group called the bird and the bee with Greg Kirsten, Mm. the producer. And Anara is also the daughter of, of, Lowell George, the uh, guy from Little Feet, who passed on. Um, I think Anara might be one of my favorite girl singers. And I'd say girl singer. I mean, women, women singer, you know. It's just.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: But she's a great songwriter, too. And I know she's really good friends with Mike and Kelly. So I might, when I go out there, just like, hey, could you guys set me up with Anara? I would love to, to try to write with her, you know.
0: A couple more quick things. Okay. Um, you had a couple serious disasters. Um, faced you faced a, a, a fire mm-hmm. and a flood, and you lost a lot of your songwriting notes, which were done with fountain pen. I did, and since since then, and pr- first of all, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Um, I don't think we can ever understand or appreciate what it feels like to lose that much stuff. You know, personal thoughts and belongings and things—not just the things, but the the memories.
4: Yeah, it's um,
0: hard. Since then, have you switched to a digital style of, of, uh, saving your notes now, uh, just out of, you know, you don't want to get burned again or
4: <laughs> literally <laughs> yeah. you, um, you would think that I would except Dave, I, I am in love with paper. You know, I love notebooks. I love the tactile feel of pen and paper. Yes. Sometimes I do write on a laptop, but no, that didn't, that didn't cure me from wanting <laughs> to use
0: notebooks. So you touched the stove, you felt it was hot, you got burned, and you went back to the stove. Yeah. I'm teasing.
4: Well, to, to be fair, I didn't start the fire, you know.
0: Thank you, Billy Joel.
4: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you've been a BBC Nashville correspondent, and uh, was that all music-related? I know you did some music.
4: It's all music-related, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, and you've done liner notes for B- B- Burt Bacharach. Did writing critically and descriptively about other people's music feed into your own songwriting urges by reminding me of what you love about it?
4: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, like I said, the interviews that I've gotten to do, you know, I mean, shoot, I've gotten to sit down with David Bowie and Paul Simon and Stevie Nicks, and there's no way you, you can do that and not come away with inspiration and, and just like feelings of affirmation and learn little tricks. And so, yeah, it's been great. So I feel so fortunate that that I've gotten to do that as a way to sort of, you know, earn a living.
0: Really, really enjoyed talking with you today.
4: Yeah, thanks for the good questions and, and reminding me of some songs I hadn't thought about in a while.
0: Good. Be well and uh, talk to you soon.
4: Okay, thanks, man. Have a good one.
0: You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode Seven with Bill Demain. Here's a programming note: Our content producer for this episode was Bill Demain aficionado and Swan Dive Uber fan Chipper Sam. Be sure and check out my Songwriter Stories interview with Chip and his bandmates, the Hangabouts. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the podcast, consider giving us a review at Apple Podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next
1: time.